Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Hello, thanks for listening today and joining us on the Global Marketing Podcast. I'm very excited to have a marketing expert on here today, Mike Crass, who's the CEO of MKG Marketing, works with a number of companies that do business all over the world in APAC, EMEA, Africa, LATAM, he can define these, these areas for us. And it, we're going to get into some interesting conversations of how companies manage their international and global marketing. So Mike, welcome. Awesome. Excited to be here. Thank you, Wendy. Yeah. So you want to, you want to define those regions just so people know what we're talking about when I say APAC, EMEA, Africa, and LATAM? Well, I guess we know Africa. Yeah. Yeah. I think Africa is a self-explaining one. Um, yeah. LATAM for the majority of our clients who are uh, technology and healthcare brands, uh, LATAM would be Latin America. It's kind of anything from Mexico south. Um, you might also uh, hear that described as like Latin X in terms of just a large description. It's not Latino because you might have a different language like in Brazil. They're speaking Portuguese, not Spanish, as one example. Mm -hmm. uh, APAC is Asia Pacific, uh, not to be confused with its sister APJ, which is Asia Pacific Japan. Um, we have half our clients call it APJ, half call it APAC, and I can't quite figure out why, but I know what it means. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, EMEA generally refers to Western Europe. Uh, it, it can include the United Kingdom, but that's always a, a point of distinction that we generally ask our clients, you know, is, is this a UK project as well, or are we talking about Germany, France, uh, you get Benelux, right? Belgium, uh, Netherlands, Luxembourg. And then I don't know why, but our friends up in the Nordic areas generally are just called the Nordics. Um, they don't they don't generally go into EMEA. We specifically have to call that out with our clients of is this including Sweden and Norway or not? And they'll tell us yes or no. So uh, I guess the Nordics are just on their own up there. What, what about Russia? Where's that fall? Russia, Russia would fall. Um, probably into an APAC discussion mm -hmm. um, or just Russia. I, I'm not sure why Russia gets to stand on its own with our clients, whereas someplace like China, which is separated by Mongolia, right, mm -hmm. um, gets to be lumped into APJ and APAC, but uh, Russia's generally just Russia. They do their <laughs> own thing with, with our clients, that is, and, and not all of our clients uh, are active in Russia. In fact, very few are compared to China. You know, China is a much bigger market for a lot of our clients. Right. Right. So tell us about what you do and who some of your clients are and what you do for them, just so we level set for what we're going to be talking about. Definitely. So MKG Marketing uh, is a digital marketing agency, and we help our clients get found through uh, transparent and measurable digital marketing. And what I mean by that is uh, transparency is actually part of one of our three core values. Uh, we always want our clients to understand what is happening um, at all times and have a 
clear line of communication and understanding there. And measurable is actually how we started the agency. Uh, our first tagline was actually uh, measurable media. And it, it had so much weight behind it that we went from that being a tagline to it really being more of our mission. Um, if, if we couldn't mm. measure what we were doing from a digital media planning and buying standpoint, um, that's kind of where we drew the line in the sand with our clients early on to say, we'd love to take your money, but I, I think we really need to define what's going to happen here. And what, what are the outcomes and what does that look like? And when we're ready to have that conversation, we can move forward. So we, like I mentioned, we're primarily working with tech and healthcare brands and healthcare is everything from the actual delivery of care uh, up to, you know, life sciences, uh, pharmaceutical brands, uh, developing new treatments or therapeutics or therapies. And uh, we're not a full service agency. So we're, we're focused in service lines such as digital advertising, uh, SEO, analytics, and strategy, as well as account management. So that those are kind of the sandboxes that we play in, and that's the type of clients that we help out. Okay. And what size clients are you working with? Yeah, we work with primarily uh, growth, re well, first of all, revenue stage uh, brands. So we work with a couple pre-revenue uh, companies, but most of them are at the revenue stage. They've found product market fit. They're generally doing somewhere in excess of 50 or $100 million a year in annual recurring revenue or annual contract value. It kind of depends on how they structure their sales organizations. And those are brands that are starting to make a decision of, hey, we're scaling our marketing function like this marketing machine, right? We have this product, we've developed some product market fit, or maybe in some cases, a lot of product market fit. And now we need to decide, how do we get this in people's hands? And so the decision that they're making is, do we hire a huge marketing team internally and just do it all in-house ourselves, which has its pros and cons? Um, or do we, do we bring in some outside help, you know, some agency help to specialize in certain areas that are really critical to our growth. And so that that's usually the, the question that a lot of those brands are starting to ask or have already answered. And that's why they're hiring us or interviewing agencies to discuss hiring us. Okay. So they come in and they want measurable media and you're finding that a lot of them are then going international. And so before we get into your clients, let's talk about you. I talk to a lot of ad agencies that say, oh, no, you know, all our clients are local or will only work in the United States. But you're willing to help them go international. Tell me about you. What's, what uh, was your first exposure in another country and what makes you comfortable working in this area? Sure. So uh, I'll start off by saying uh, I'm the son of uh, two former airline employees on the corporate side. Uh, who went through a series of mergers and the big consolidations in the 70s and 80s. Um, so I was kind of born with jet fuel and wings in my blood. And, <laughs> I love that. Uh, at age two, actually, uh, at the time, my both parents were working for Northwest Airlines, and which got bought by Delta uh, in the early 2000s. And uh, we had the opportunity to move to Japan. So I was from two to four, I was a uh, went to Japanese school. I spoke fluent Japanese, and that was something that I could, you know, years or decades later, I can only remember so much about that experience being so young. That being said, I, I've been back a few times, and I, it's a language 
that still sounds so familiar to me, even though I can't quite place a lot of it now. I'm just like the rhythm and the cadence of Japanese versus something like Korean or Chinese. I'm like, those are quite foreign sounding to me just because my ears aren't tuned that way. Yes. But I, I have, I've got a little Japanese tuning fork somewhere deep in my long-term memory. And uh, it comes out when I visit Japan. <laughs> Good for you. I love that story. There's always something interesting behind somebody doing international work. They've had some early exposure. And I know what you mean about having that tuning fork because I went to kindergarten and first grade or first and second grade in Mexico. And I've got that same thing with Spanish. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So that, that was age two. And then uh, you know, if, if you're the child of an airline employee, you're generally you hang out in airports a lot. Uh, we didn't drive as a kid. We flew because that <laughs> we were very fortunate to, I should say, uh, I don't want to sound flippant, but we were very fortunate to be able to fly to see family and to experience new things in different countries. And so from really, you know, age two on, I was uh, exposed to different countries. And now as an adult, you know, I, I still have a lot of that passion inside me. And it's a it's a passion I would describe as me seeking to understand. I'm, I'm not traveling to other countries to try and prove something. You know, mm-hmm. um, I'm not going to Mexico to say, man, the tacos, they're good here in Mexico City. But I'm telling you, there's this place in Houston and it's got the best tacos. I'm, I'm not playing that game uh, right. when I travel. I'm just saying, like, I just want to go to Mexico City and try tacos. I want to go to Japan and do the, the sushi boat restaurants and eat things that I can't pronounce and go to... Uh, you know, fun places that I'll probably never find again. And that's, uh, it's something that's kind of deep in my soul. And I was very lucky to, to marry a woman. Uh, my, my wife is the same way. Her, her mom took her traveling very young, um, you know, four or five, six years old. They were going through Korea and through Europe and other places in the world. And I believe that, I firmly believe that unless you've actually been somewhere, you don't quite exactly know it. You can watch it on the news you know, at night over dinner, but until you've actually been there and you've talked to the people and you've kind of understood and, and walked a mile, you know, sh- uh, shoe by shoe, uh, I, I don't quite know that I, I believe anything that I, I hear on the news until I get to do that. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I, I hear you. I'm the same way. And it's the same with seeing things, like seeing the Parthenon and seeing the Colosseum and seeing the Eiffel Tower. You can't, no matter what you imagine, I guess it goes for the Grand Canyon here in the United States. Until you actually get to see something, you can't can't really understand it. Yeah, there's probably some behavioral psychology tied into that. When I when I lived in Italy, you know, I I I lived in Rome, and I still have certain landmarks around the major landmarks. So if I'm near the Pantheon, that's where um, 100 Gelatos is, and that's not what it's actually called, but it's a gelato joint. <laughs> and it's it's different than like, you know, just the four in the front and you pick from four flavors. It's got a hundred. And I took my wife there a couple of years ago when we were in Italy. And I she actually asked, you know, she wanted to see the Pantheon because it's the, I believe, the oldest church in Rome. Hmm. It was considered a church because it was really originally built for that purpose. And uh, I was like, well, if you can get me to a hundred gelatos, I can get you there easily. But I don't <laughs> quite know exactly how to get to the Pantheon because I, I never really hung out there. Like... <laughs> But 100 Gelatos wasn't the real name, so you had to go looking for the gelato place to find the Pantheon? Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, we because Cento is a uh, hundred in Italian, so I I would just look for Cento, and I'd be like, oh, I know it's around here somewhere, and I could kind of start to see how the streets it's kind of tucked away, and if I could get there, it's like you just you get some gelato first of all, and then you walk out of there and you take a right, and you're basically at the Pantheon in two minutes. <laughs> so you used to get your gelato and then go walk over and sit on the Pantheon steps and eat it. <laughs> yeah, eat it. You know, there's a there's an obelisk uh, in that piazza with like. You know, the Roman Empire took a lot of uh, Egyptian obelisks or obelai. I'm not even sure how you pluralize that word. Believe whatever Uh, you say. (laughs) You just lean your back up against it. You enjoy your gelato and you just hang out. It's it's the (laughs) Italian thing to do. (laughs) So you've lived in Japan. You lived in Rome and Italy. Where else have you lived? Uh, Those are, in terms of long-term living, those are the two places that uh, I've spent outside the United States uh, and then here in the U.S., I, I grew up on the West Coast and uh, have slowly migrated over to New Orleans, which is where I live and work now. Okay. Okay. All right. So how long have you owned uh, MKG Marketing? We've been in business. There's two dates. Uh, we've been in business for 10 years in terms of the date that we actually conceived the idea. You know, my business partner and I, her and I, we, we look at that as kind of our birthday, even though it wasn't anything at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would really say it's about nine years of being in business now. Yeah, that's a rough one. You could pick either one and just go I, for it, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm worried about trying to plan a 10-year anniversary party in the middle of a global health pandemic uh, as we're recording here in January of 2021. So I'm I think I'm going to lean towards nine for now, and, and we'll do that next year. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so that'll decide it, and then you'll have it cemented in forevermore. Yeah. And when did you start working with clients that wanted to uh, go global or have global marketing tied in? It was not from the very beginning. We really started in North America, uh, you know, helping out primarily American businesses that uh, also had a Canadian presence, so you're still speaking English with the an S in the place of a Z here and there, depending on which side of Canada you're marketing in. Um, right. maybe, maybe a little French. We tried to avoid the French for a while, but you can't do that too long once you get east in Canada. So I'd say probably three or four years in, a lot of our clients, they're globally headquartered here in the United States of America. And they started coming to us with the question of, hey, we, we love the strategy and all the programming we're doing here in the U.S., could we expand that to other English-speaking countries? You know, United Kingdom, um, you're talking about Australia, New Zealand, you know, places like that where English is still the primary first language. And that was really our, our stepping stone where we said, sure, you know, we'd, we'd be happy to do that with you. And from there, it expanded to, uh, it's kind of like if you give a mouse a cookie, you know, the, the marketing manager in Belgium heard that the marketing manager in London was getting this global support out of HQ in the U.S. So why can't I get that? And, you know, so it, they actually kind of came to us through their corporate structure and just said, you know, hey, we speak English in Belgium, too. Why can't you help us here with our, our English, uh, you know, digital marketing needs? And that transitioned into, well, we also speak French, a little bit of German, and maybe you could help us out with that. And and that was uh that was probably, I'd say, four or five years into the business when a lot of those questions, it took a year or two to get going. But uh, like I said, when you give the mouse a cookie in London, everyone else wants the cookie. So uh, that, that became a popular question. I've heard that with measurable marketing and online is that 
it once you start proving yourself and the other markets look at that they go oh wait i want some of that so it, you really you've seen that play out i have and it, it's always an interesting event i'll call it an event to play out because oftentimes that what i would call a field marketing manager or maybe a country manager mm -hmm. um, so say you know benelux or germany or france or the uk they want that support from a lot of our our clients out of headquarters but there's also components of their marketing efforts that they want to go and hire a local agency and sometimes those are those are at odds with the overall business strategy of you know how do we how do we use all the all the support out of HQ but also how do I get somebody who knows like intimately like my market they speak this language fluently I don't need to translate anything for them um, literally and figuratively and so it it um, it's an interesting event to play out and it generally happens company-wide is what we've seen you know some companies those country managers just say I want all the help I can get I'd love to work with you and other times it's like pulling teeth you know where HQ is saying you're going to work with MKG and um, they're saying well we kind of want to hire a local agency that you know we can get our hands on and go to their offices and have you know work work time in person and stuff like that and uh, it's it's really kind of a company by company thing just based on the culture and how they look at getting work done within the company not the not the country but the company itself it is so interesting because I've done some other podcasts. Um, I, I talked to um, Rotary International and talked about their process about how they went from a very reactive multilingual marketing to a truly global organization and built in a lot of efficiencies. I talked to another woman, Randy Rogers, who talked about they'd send the translation off to their local offices. They'd create it in corporate. Um, you know, so Rotary did a good example of what is done local, what's done global, what can you expect? So they laid it all out. Randy Rogers, everything was created in corporate and then sent to the local offices for translation, but their marketing, in-country marketing manager, then spent a week of time translating all the material and they lost all that marketing time that they were supposed to be doing. And right. then I talked to um, Zach Selches, who is an international sales consultant. And he was talking about if you use your distributors in market, you're losing the opportunity cost of having them sell and risking the message. So there's all different kinds of views of how it, you know, I put in quotation marks, should happen. So can you talk through what you've seen, like how, let's start with the troubles, the troubles you've seen with companies in handling the multilingual marketing or their global marketing. What doesn't work? What doesn't work, I would say first on the list is any kind of misalignment over workflow and who's responsible for what. And mm. I, would add, I would append to the end of that comment what really doesn't work is when I'm going to air quotes, I'm going to call it HQ, you know, the headquarters back in America or maybe Canada has competing interests with that country manager. And what I mean by that is country manager wants X, Y, Z to happen and HQ wants A, B and C to happen. And HQ says, well, I'm, I'm putting the bill for this. So you can basically take your, disagreements over a b and c and you can 
you can take off. Like, I'm not worried about that, you know, <laughs> but give me a more it, solid example on that. Yeah. A good example would be um, coming back to Japan. You know, one of our, our clients who's based in California, they've got a large uh, APAC presence, big office in Tokyo, yeah, mostly sales office, um, not too much engineering or ops. It's mostly sales. And mm -hmm. that country manager, we were working with them about three or four years ago. All he really wanted was to show up on page one of Google search results for a couple key terms. You know, he was saying, like, I'm not asking for the moon here. I just want, I just want to show up for these five terms. Like that would make our selling a lot easier. He's not even talking about people clicking on the results. He's just saying, we just need to appear in mm -hmm. that search marketplace. And out of the headquarters, they were saying, appearing because they were a little bit more mature out of headquarters with their marketing uh, capabilities and their head, you know, bigger headcount and everything like that. And they said, showing up is great. We need people to fill out a form and get on the phone and actually, you know, book a meeting with a salesperson and attend the meeting. That, that, that's now the official handoff between sales and marketing. And so the reason why that was their, their interests were not aligned, even though they were, they were on the right track, but they weren't aligned is because in Japan, that stakeholder just said, anything you can do to get me there as fast as possible, do it. Mm -hmm. In America, uh, you know, with that mature marketing organization, they understand search engine optimization. It's, you know, one of our key service lines. And they say, they, they said, we don't just want to show up for anything. We need to show up for these right things. And so they're looking these, for conversions. They don't care about lots of the numbers. Business. They want to... Results, yeah. And in J in Japan, it was more of a, and I, I understood totally where the country manager was coming from. Right. He just wanted to be to tell his sales guys and girls, hey, if you're on a sales call and you're facing this uphill objection, just tell them to Google this one search term that we should show up for, and then guarantee we show up organically, not not paying for it, but organically show up. And so he was looking at it more from a sales enablement standpoint. Whereas in the U.S., they were like, no, no, this is a marketing machine. It feed, Yes, it will feed sales, but this isn't like a sales, like a trick. You know, you pull the rabbit out of the hat, right, um, when you're facing an uphill objection from a prospect. This is, this is a lead generating, you know, prospect generating machine. And just showing up isn't going to be enough. And because of that, we can't just do the quick and dirty things to show up quick. Right. We need to make long-term plans. And... I, I could see the angst between the two groups, and I wouldn't say that our agency gets caught in between. We kind of get caught adjacent to those conversations. Right, And so right. we just, we kind of witness them happen, and every once in a while, um, you know, a stakeholder from Japan would say, da, 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 isn't that right, MKG? And I was like, oh, oh, like, I see what's happening here. <laughs> I feel like we're like siblings at the dinner table, and like, I, I see what's happening. I don't like this at all. <laughs> right, no, I'm not going to put an opinion in at all. You guys have to solve it, and then I can implement right. what we're, you're we're happy saying. to facilitate, and we also have a conflict of interest. We get paid out of America. So right. the moment we side with them, that yeah. stakeholder in Japan says, well, they just cut your check. So of course you're going to side with them. And that's not an unreasonable thing to say. He also did not say it in such a whiny voice like I just did. He was very mature okay. about it. But I could tell he was thinking like, you're an American agency. 
you're going to back up the U.S. headquarters, and I'm just out here kiting the wind in Japan trying to get work done and, and do deals. And and, and I, I understand the, the culture better, so why aren't you doing it my way? Because that'll oftentimes come in in country in country managers too, right? Totally. Yeah. I mean, this stakeholder was born, you know, born and raised in Japan, had worked in Japan for his whole life, had worked with non-Japanese employers, right? You know, he'd been employed by an American, uh, Canadian companies before. So it wasn't like this was his first rodeo working uh, with a hand that kind of the, mar the marionette that kind of guided him in his, yeah. his department from across the pond. I love the, I, uh, the the describing the Japanese worker with this first rodeo, which is a <laughs> typical <yeah>. American <laughs> West. <laughs> Give me a fun image, but <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, th that's probably more of a concrete example instead of using letters of just a, a real life example that happened three or four years ago where there was just friction that we had to work through and it wasn't insurmountable. Like we worked through it. It right. was fine at the end of the day. Right. It was just that process that I just described, what that does is going to, it's probably going to double the amount of calls that you have when you're having them with a, you know, Japanese stakeholder or stakeholders, plural, right? It's 15 or 17 or 18 hour time difference, depending on where you are in the U S. And when you start talking about doubling calls, it's not just like, Oh, we'll hop on tomorrow morning and sort it out. It's like, it becomes an act of Congress just to get another call scheduled. And right. so it's a little, um, I'll speak outside of that one experience. It's a little demoralizing when you don't get something done because you work so hard to get it scheduled and all the right people are there and you're talking and there's like good dialogue and then you just go, crap, we're going to need another call, aren't we? And this is going to take another two weeks and then, you know, we're not going to get that time back. That time's gone. Right, right. Yet, again and again, the research shows that if you go slower and bring more diversity in, you get a better decision and better results. And outside of the research, I can share, this has happened with every single one of our clients, just sharing experience. If you move too fast and you make that country manager, and, and that's a generic you know, air quotes title, it could be country GM, it could be digital marketing lead, you know, director dash Japan or whatever, whatever the title is. Mm -hmm. If you move fast without her or him, it becomes really obvious that you just, the message you're saying is like, we don't really care that much if you get on board with this. Yeah. Right. And they're that that's a really bad message to send because they're saying, well, my compensation is predicated on hitting numbers and I'm here in the market. I'm talking to local customers every single day in language, um, hearing about their specific problems. And when you move fast without me, it makes me think that I just don't need to be part of this anymore. Right. I'll save my time. And that, that's just, it's not a great workplace dynamic to create. Okay, so that's probably the example, a second example of mistakes you see. Number one is misalignment over HQ and uh, country. And then number two would be not listening to your country managers or your in-country people that have input, not listening, Correct, not getting yeah. buy-in or participation. They have a lot of valuable input and sometimes it can be a bit, difficult to extract that valuable input just like i mentioned with scheduling meetings and language barriers and cultural differences but um there's no faster way to kind of set off a country manager than to just essentially 
take actions that show that you don't value um, their contribution towards the process. Right. What other mistakes do you see? The other mistakes I see, and I think that you'll really like this one based on your business, um, I'll just, I'll lovingly call it sloppy translation. Uh, <laughs> You're talking my language now. <laughs> I know, for the listeners, I, I promise, like, that wasn't a plug or anything. Um, it, it truly, it, sloppy translation creates problems. And a great example I have actually happened in November of, the, of 2020, you know, two months ago. We had a client, and we were asking for some confirmation uh, from their APAC team on a translation. Mm -hmm. And we had the translation started in the US office and then it was checked with Google Translate <laughs> and then it went, went over. But it started, it went from English to Japanese and then it was, it was double checked in Google Translate and then it went over. And, and uh, what they caught was so interesting. They said, yeah, Translate actually they took a proper noun and they made it not a proper noun and split one word into two. And it was actually um, part of their company name was split into two. So it should be a proper noun. Um, and so like, yeah, it, half of these translated correctly, but half did not. And um, so that, that sloppy translation exercise was not, something we couldn't get over. Like they caught it immediately and they said, oh, well actually this is translated wrong. I can see how you think it's right, but it's not. And that, um, that was a really great learning experience because we haven't had translation problems too much between countries lately. And so it was a, I look at it as a great, it was a gift. It was a wake up call to just say, hey, you know, even when we've got the Japanese speaker here in America, and then it was checked with translate, you know, a, a machine translation service, we still sent something over that wasn't completely perfect. I don't understand. If you had a qualified human translate it, why would you use Google Translate to check it? Uh, well, honestly, we were just curious if they were right or not. <laughs> and you thought that Google Translate would be more accurate? No, I think it was more of just like, let's see what she created for us, you know, English to Japanese. It, it was in the approval cycle. So it wasn't like something went live in the marketplace right. incorrectly, but uh, we're curious folks over here at MKG. So we were kind of like, man, she's been talking a big game about her Japanese skills and her Japanese skills are great, this client, but they, they weren't perfect. And going through Translate, there was just one little thing that set it off. Is she a native Japanese speaker or a native no. English who learned Japanese? Uh, Japanese American. So she, but born in America. And so there was, she just made a mistake is all that happened. Okay. Okay. Cause yeah. typically if we're putting somebody on a translation, they have to be native speaker and educated in that, that to into the target language. So source language would have been English target language would have been Japanese. Okay, and so she yeah. made a mistake on the company name, so you didn't accept the Google changes. You sent her translation over, or did you adapt any, did you change anything once you looked at Google? Uh, I believe we took the second, I think we sent what was adapted, and just because of the, mis the mistake, it 
Google Translate, you know, being a machine translation service, fragmented it even more. Um, and it, that's what we sent over. The Google Translate version. Correct. And they, they automatically caught that. Like, oh, yeah, like that's a tricky sentence, um, especially dealing with character limits. You know, we have certain character limits. And in uh, Japanese uh, katakana, basically one English letter is going to end up being two. Uh, or I'm sorry, one katakana character will end up being two when it comes to something like a paid search headline, which has a, you know, a, a character limit. Right. And so we were trying to work through that and, and um, kind of write creatively, but it, it didn't end up working. And it wasn't a huge deal. They actually got a kick out of it in Japan because they said, normally you just send us English and make us do all the work. Like at least you sent me something that's 95% done and I could just say, correct, 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 done. It's proved. Yeah. No? Okay. Okay. So that's why they weren't really upset. Where I see correct. people getting upset more is if they're expecting it to be final and then you send them something junk, then they, you know, or junk or with mistakes and they get all upset but if they're saying oh well you you did it you're helping us more then I can see why they weren't upset yeah yeah it was more of a like we we were collectively having a little bit of fun we're like well why don't we why don't the American groups you know take a shot at this and we did pretty good I'm not gonna lie I mean if, if that was the only thing that really came back with a bunch of red lines on it I think we did pretty darn good considering none of us are native Japanese speakers. speakers there you go. <laughs> and I love your curiosity on, ooh, let's just try this and see what we get. Yeah, we'll, we'll find out. Um, we've also, we also at MKG have a few um, small resources when we just need to get like a sentence or two checked when I'll, I'll email it over to a friend of mine. We've developed some contacts over there and just say, hey, is, is this good? You know, would, would you change it at all? And so we've, we've got some small, small resources over there uh, when we need them. For that client when you're doing the translation into Japanese? Correct, yeah. It's uh, actually our resources are all former clients, um, not of this company, but of a third party. And we just say, hey, you know, would you read this? And they, they're always like, you send us the weirdest things because I get this email out of nowhere about a very specific <laughs> sentence with like 19 characters in it. And uh, I understand you don't want to be to change too much, but it still needs to be correct. And, you know, here's what I think, you know. Uh, good luck. <laughs> yeah, so what do you advise for companies that are starting to expand and they don't have all those connections to check things? I hope you know enough to say don't use Google Translate because it's not going to give it good enough. What do you <laughs> recommend to them then? Yeah, so, you know, as our clients expand, we've seen their international expansion kind of almost in two stages. If it's an early stage expansion, as in they're not already set up with, you know, physical offices and headcount and, you know, all these other resources in country. Right. Um, those early stage folks, it's generally like five employees, most of whom are working from home or maybe a WeWork, um, trying to open up that market for the, for the uh, business. And so what we tend to recommend and what we see is, hey, let's, let's create some workbooks for you. We color code all of them with any kind of text ad copy, whether it's, you know, a blog post or um, text ads, like I mentioned, or, you know, anything that needs to be written. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just follow the stoplight methodology. So we code those Excel workbooks, you know, red means you've gone too far. Yellow means you're arriving at too far, but you haven't crossed the line yet. And green means whatever you've typed, you know, in your, uh, in-country language is good. You know, it fits all the character counts. We're not going to have any problems. 
and we send English from America over into the market. And the downside with that is they have to do the translation work. Okay, themselves. wait, so let me get this. So you've got a company that's got only five employees here in the US working in a WeWork and they have the English content, but they send it over to the country, but they don't have anybody there. So who no, do they the, send the it to? the opposite. They, they have, in my example, there's five people in country. So let's use Singapore as an example. They've got oh, five so it's a company in coming into the US. No, it's going out. So it's Ameri most of our clients are American businesses and they're expanding right. into Singapore. So they start by hiring a couple people and they stuff them in a WeWork. Oh, okay. Okay. So yeah. it's not a small, small startup. I thought you, because there are, there are companies with only five employees in the U.S. that are already doing global expansion. So I thought you were talking about that size company, but you're talking about a little right. bit bigger. A little bit bigger, yeah. Okay. Um, so that, that's kind of one way that we approach it. It puts the work on their plate, which is not ideal because they're already very busy. Um, using the kite and the wind analogy I mentioned earlier, it's kind of like anything related to that country, again, using Singapore as an example, becomes their problem from a marketing or a communication standpoint, which means that they're almost like magnets for like stuff to do, <laughs> right? Uh, it's like they can't, they can't help it. So, so there's, they don't have a functional responsibility. They have everything for the country that they're supposed to do to launch and they're across all functional groups. Correct. Um, yeah. and, and then if, if a company can afford it, we do have partners, um, you know, like your outfit that we've, I know we've talked about sending uh, projects your way in the past where um, we say, hey, if speed and time is of the essence and you want it to be done quickly and right so that it can be reviewed in market as opposed to completely composed in market, you know, we would, we, we, kind of lean our clients that direction because we can get it done a lot faster and actually get started in terms of pushing those programs into market faster. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are kind of the two ways that we go about it. And I will mention that those come from the lens very much of like out, outward facing marketing communications. Um, you know, we don't do any kind of work in terms of like customer service uh, or that kind of support, but mm -hmm. that would that would introduce a whole host of new problems in terms of how you do multilingual uh, customer support um, or basic customer success even uh, activities. Right, right. So, um, so go back to the first one. You've got the early stage, and they go, "We're going to open up in Singapore. We're going to put five employees in a WeWork." And then they say, "Well, we're going to open up in Spain. We'll put the five employees in WeWork." Now we're going to open up in Peru. They put the five employees in WeWork, and now they've got two different countries doing the Spanish translations. What do you see in that area? Yeah, I know you're in that example. We're talking about. Uh, Spanish, you know, we see that probably more often in French. Uh, we, earlier in our our episode, mm -hmm. we talked about um, Ontario, right, the province in Canada. You're talking about uh, Quebec, which they're going to be speaking French, but a little bit differently than in France. And so mm -hmm. generally, who we send that to in the first scenario is that in-country uh, resource. And more often than not, we send it at the same time. But if we can stagger it, we can then give someone something to review as opposed to the task to do the whole composition themselves right so we can 
send it over and say, hey, the Canadians have already seen this. We know that you're a little bit different, but this should, you know, this should be 80, 90% of the way there if you could just read over it and redline a few things and help us out. Okay. Okay. So then, so then at that point, you're controlling the message. You're not sending it off to multiple places. You're getting one country to translate it and then getting it reviewed. Because that's another mistake that I hear is within country is that you've got, then you've got four different translations in the same language if the, the language is spoken in different places. Oh, yeah. And I mean, Italy is a great example. You know, Italy as a country is a relatively new country if you look at its history. Um, I believe it's younger than the United States of America. And it used to just be a bunch of just separate areas. Um, in the 1500s, it was more split into regions, you know, like Florence, you know, the, uh, the great Florence, you know, the uh, art and I'm seeing oh, this right, actually right, right. Netflix this movie. Yeah. The Renaissance, yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, and then you get south and you get towards Sicily, which is a whole other different culture. And um, when I was actually living in Italy, uh, I was told that there are, there are still about 2,000 dialects of Italian spoken in Italy. And really? Mm -hmm. The further north you get, the cleaner it gets because you're getting near Switzerland, which is the great equalizer in terms of neutrality, right? And, <laughs> Across everything. You know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, anybody can understand somebody in Switzerland speaking Italian, English, or German. Like, they, it's just right. easy. Uh, and I, I still remember when I was told that, that I was told that by an Italian gentleman because his friend was trying to talk to me probably in the gelato shop because I was in a lot of gelato shops <laughs> and I honestly couldn't understand a word the guy was saying like I the sounds and the rhythm sounded Italian I was like I think he might be speaking Portuguese uh, which I don't speak any Portuguese and his friend said no no he's just from the south uh, of yeah. Italy you know down by the heel of the boot and I forget the the area he's from. He's like nobody really under. We don't. He's our friend. We don't really understand him half the time because, <laughs> like, it's it's just a very different dialect. It sounds different. It sounded uh, sounded harsh. You know, that's actually why I equated it to Portuguese because Portuguese to me sounds like a beautiful language, but it's still a little harsh on my ears compared to Italian, which is very soft. Right, right. Well, even if you were to leave New Orleans and drive to other parts of of Louisiana or Louisiana be yeah. <laughs> much different the, the Cajun accent and the the southern accent it's much much different and harder to understand yeah and, and we say you know English is an easy language to learn but that's yeah. that couldn't be further from the truth you've got that great example with Louisiana same thing up in Bo uh, in Massachusetts near you you mm -hmm. know you, you go too far into South Boston and I've, I've ventured there for a few <laughs> St. Patrick's days and I was like I don't even think we're speaking English anymore. I'm, I'm unsure what we're talking about. And I, I, I'm just going to walk away. <laughs> First time I went to the UK I, or to London, I had also visited France and I took high school and college French. And so um, I, you know, was struggling my way through speaking French. And then we got to London. I couldn't understand what people were saying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, this is the same language I speak and was born and raised with, but the accent was so different. Now I've worked with a lot of people from the UK and London to have a much easier time, but it is funny yeah. when you start talking about different accents and culturally adapting the language. It certainly helps to understand some of those colloquial sayings and uh, how, how different things are expressed. Uh, we've got a good, my wife and I have a good uh, pair of friends in England about 
an hour and a half west and north of London. And but we actually FaceTimed them over the weekend. And mm-hmm. some of the things they were saying, we were like, what? And actually their, their favorite word of American English is garbage. They think it's hilarious. Yeah. Really? Just like, no, it's, it's rubbish. Like you put it in the bin and like you put garbage in the can and they're like, oh my gosh. Like talking about, you know, your cowboy comment earlier. Like they think that we are cowboys the way that we speak English. <laughs> They're like garbage. Tell me that word garbage again. <laughs> <laughs> so they don't use garbage for anything. No, it's uh, you know rubbish. Uh, I think you might hear trash in England every once in a while, but not a lot. That that's kind of an American English word. Well, I, on a on a prior episode, it was hysterical because um, she was telling me about. Uh, pants in UK and a guy American guy walked in and he's like how come you know you ladies never wear pants to work and they all got kind of looking at him like he was strange pants means underwear whereas trousers mean pants oh yeah so she's hysterical and talking about that just a, a little term that would be so different <laughs> yeah for sure there's a lot of differences in the same language so what about um, cultural differences in search engine optimization and ad spend and that kind of, what do you have to be aware of as you're planning out global uh, campaigns? Yeah, there's definitely things we pay attention to. Um, you know, I, I would use maybe Germany, France, and Japan as good examples. Um, you know, in, in France, it's, and these are my experiences. So I, I certainly don't want to cast this as, you know, the truth. And I'm, I'm painting all French people with the same brush because I, I haven't met all the French people yet. Um, <laughs> one day I will. <laughs> They're great. I love French people. Yeah. So you're just generalizing um, at this point. Yeah. Generalizing. Yeah. Uh, I, I noticed that, that a lot of what we're doing from an SEO and a paid ad standpoint in French, we seem to have a little bit more creative liberty over the language that we're translating and using. Uh, German and Japanese are a lot more direct. Uh, you know, I think it's just part of German culture. Uh, I've got quite a few German and even Swiss friends uh, who are going to speak German as well. And they, they do business much more directly. They don't tend to mince words and, you know, writing long, flowing, elegant, you know, never-ending uh, copy doesn't tend to always work the best there. And so it's just kind of a rule of if we're going to write something long, you need to have in the first sentence or even paragraph, you just have to get to the point and then explain everything behind it. Um, and it's it's similar when you talk about Japan. You know, Japan, even today, when you look at like Japanese corporate websites, um, they're still very much like what the web looked like back in the mid to late 90s. You know, it's a lot of white backgrounds, it's a lot of blue, and Yahoo is actually the dominant search portal, which is different than a search engine um, Hmm. in Japan. And so you have to think, you know, a portal, the way that I talk about a portal is, if you remember signing into American Online, like you actually had to open a program, and then, you know, you actually connected to the internet and your, your email and your news and, you know, the internet browser opened to you from that point. Boy, that was uh, slow when I was on AOL. <laughs> I know, I know. I still remember those thousand hour CDs, you know, that they'd hand out and oh. try and get people hooked on AOL for a thousand hours. <laughs> <laughs> and the phone login, but go ahead, go ahead. I digress. 
<laughs> yeah. So you you know we've we've found you just need to be a little more direct in in countries where not just business but the the overall culture and kind of the vibe of that country is to be a little bit more direct and you know J Japan is such an interesting country to do I'm doing air quotes do marketing in because the Japanese business structure not just for marketing but just businesses in general they're so focused on long-term success you know, there's, there's, mm -hmm. there are Japanese day traders, sure, but not like they are here in America or other countries in the world. Um, mm -hmm. Everything is for long-term success, not immediate, you know, stock price performance. Mm -hmm. um, they compensate differently. Uh, I know the, the president or the CEO of Japan Airlines, I forget his name. I think he just retired a few years ago. I think to the day he retired, he made $70,000 US. And I mean, there's so many people in that company that made more money than him, but he didn't care. That wasn't important to him. He said, you know, my goal is to have an airline that like functions. And if there are smarter mm. people that can do more than me, great. I'm happy to pay him more. He ate in the cafeteria every single day. He brought his lunch uh, that his wife packed him or that he packed himself. And he might buy, you know, a Coke or something like that. But he was he was a, a man of the people. Um, and I, I also believe with that long term vision what we've experienced with clients who are either working for a Japanese, you know, Japan based company or an American company and they are opening Japan, they, they play that long game and they make you earn their trust. Mm -hmm. And so doing business um, with those men and women is not a quick thing. You're not going to jump on one call and do a one call close on any kind of deal. Like they want to know, are you going to be around? You know, do I have confidence that if we do business together, that this is going somewhere in the long run? And and um, I'm I'm certainly not saying one is bad or good. It's just right. different. And if you go in there thinking you're going to one call close a company based in Tokyo, they're like, we've got months of conversation before we get real serious. And then once we get real serious, okay, like maybe then you can pick up the phone and say. Here's the offer. Are you in? Are you out? But there, there is no skipping all of that. Getting to know one another and making sure that we're very confident in one another's abilities. Um, you know, here in America, I'm not sure about you, but even our agency, we get referrals from people I haven't heard from from years. And they're like, oh, you got to go talk to this person. Da, da, da. I pick up the phone. I'm like, who referred you to me? And that doesn't <laughs> happen with our. You know, in Japan, if you got referred, you know you got referred. Um, you know, you probably got a lot of. Uh, emails or text messages or phone calls saying, hey, I'm about to refer you. Hey, I'm referring you tomorrow. Hey, I'm referring you in five minutes. Hey, I've referred you. Like, you know, take oh, care of this person because I'm putting myself out there too and in, in making this connection. Right. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so what's going on now is, uh, you know, we're in, going into 2021 and people can't travel over to make those in-person connections, which are so valuable in Japan and other countries. We're doing a lot more in video. How are you seeing relationships change now? And what do you think we're going to do coming out of it? Yeah, in terms of relationships, what we are seeing with our client portfolio is our current client relationships are getting stronger. And it's probably by a factor of two, you know, call it twice as hard to create new relationships because, you know, folks are hesitant to make change right now. Um, and so, in terms of building relationships with that second group, you know, folks that you don't know quite well, you don't know very well right now, but you want to, 
we've found that just constant communication um, in all different approved and you know opted in uh, channels seems to be the best. So that means if we get a sales meeting uh, with you or even just a, a conversation, maybe it's a networking meeting that could turn into something, but we're just networking right now. Um, you know, we're going to let you know three times before the meeting, hey, this is the time, still work for you, let us know if it needs to change. You know, we, we just, we want to be top of mind with a lot of those folks as we're trying to break into their brain space. And in terms of how I, I think, uh, and I'm by no means an expert, but how I think this will change in a, I'll call it a vaccinated world, right? Because it, it will never really be like over and back to normal. It will just be what what is now. Right. And in a vaccinated world where it's perfectly safe to just go on Delta's website and book a flight to Japan or to Germany or to South Africa to do a business meeting, I'm thinking that in the first the first parts of the that vaccinated world, people are going to be traveling like crazy. So whichever airlines and hotels survive through this thing are going to make more money than they know what to do with coming out of this because everyone is going to go and just explode out of their homes. Hmm. And um, what I think will actually settle is I believe that from a finance standpoint, you know, the finance function within a company will start to look a lot more critically at travel expenses. So I think they're going to start saying like, hey, that, that's fine if you need to go to South Africa. But you also went um, to Nairobi, Kenya, and London last month. So are these all trips? I, I think that the criteria for like what is an approved trip is going to change because for the past year, roughly, uh, companies have had to build relationships and do business virtually, you know, video to video face. And mm -hmm. so I, th I think from the finance function, they're going to start, I'll see a lot of our clients and other companies start to ask that critical question like, is this a meeting you have to be at? If yes, go into concur or whatever expense management system, you know, expensify, whatever, go book it. Don't mm -hmm. worry about it. But we're going to start putting the screws to list a little bit more and not just hearing you say like, well, yeah, you know, it's, it's a deal closing. Okay. Which deal within Salesforce are you closing for this trip? Mm -hmm. right? right. You know, asking those questions that people who are trying to do some fun international travel are like, I don't want to answer those questions yet. <laughs> I want to go to Nairobi. Let's go somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you questioning my decision? Yes. Yeah. So I, I don't know if it will get formalized into almost like tiers within companies, but it could where it right. says, you know, this is a tier one meeting, meaning I'm expecting to walk out with a physical signed piece of paper with some sort of commitment, whether that's a contract or a partnership agreement or an exclusive, like, I'm walking out of here with like a tier one deal signed in, you know, in ink on, in my Which hands. makes sense for a U.S. company, but that building relationship company where you're supposed to go over and drink with them or break bread or have conversations before you even talk business, what does that do at that point? I mean, I can see a lot of cultural issues coming into play there. Yeah. Um, I've got one response that I, I kind of want to hear from you as well. I'm thinking of we're staying in Germany and Japan. And, and again, with, you know, doing business in Japan, you're right. You've got this whole, we're going out for happy hour and then we're going out for dinner and then we're going out for after dinner. There's drinking through this whole thing. 
Right. And then uh, I still remember, you know, my dad telling me about the airline business back in the 80s, you know, 70s and 80s. And he said, what you do is you take them out drinking all night, drinking or eating or whatever, some sort of activity. And then you give them like a gift basket and you pay for their cab ride home. But you think of all the touch points right there of like right. a happy hour bar, a dinner restaurant, an after dinner, uh, maybe an after after dinner place, depending on how late you're going. And then a taxi driver. Like, I mean, a single person could be in contact with a couple hundred people easily. And that's just at small places, not even right. like big venues. Right. Um, but that's like, that is ingrained in Japanese culture, right? Of like, this is how we do business here. And so I, I'm really curious to see if there's conflict between cultures where maybe somebody comes from America, I'm just making this up, and they go to Japan for a work event, which they're going to go through this, uh, this evening I just described. Mm -hmm. And they're not comfortable going out to a bar. How do you say that? I think in the past, it would just be, I'm sorry, I'm not comfortable, or maybe they're uncomfortable because they had a drinking problem in the past. I'm sorry, you know, no, I don't want to be disrespectful, which is, you know, I don't want to disrespect your honor. Um, but I, I, I you can't put me in a bar, you know, I, I can't do that. And I'm, I'm curious to see if there'll be cultural conflicts where some countries are sort of back to normal air quotes, whereas others say like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm happy to have a drink in the boardroom and be six feet apart without a mask on. But I, don't don't take me to, you know, uh, a late night place where we're going to be crowded elbow to elbow with people. You know, I'm I'm not okay with that. So, in the story oh, that I just oh, because you're talking to, about COVID, you're not even so you're not even talking a drinking problem, but also still the. I mean, there's so many different complications there. I mean, oh, yeah. women have had to deal with that in you know do, doing business in certain cultures that don't recognize women in leadership positions that, you know, you're advised to take a man with you and the culture right. is more used to dealing with the man, even if the woman's more senior and how do you handle that? Um, and then I, on an earlier podcast, I was interviewing somebody who said he's, he's living in Vietnam right now and it's expected that you go out and get drunk with the people like falling down drunk under the table drinking. But if you're healthy and or you don't drink for whatever reason to that extent, um, yeah. how do you handle that? Which is a whole whole other situation because there have to be people who struggle with alcoholism in all these countries that can still be successful in business. Well, and to your point, you mentioned, you know, how do you build relationships when you can't be with some, you know, physically face to face? And there might be some long lasting benefits where where people learn, like, I actually build relationships a lot better when I'm not put in positions where either I am uncomfortable or I make others uncomfortable. Right. 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 You might be okay going out drinking, but everyone who's with you is like, this guy has half a beer and he literally falls out. Like, you know, we, we got to mop this guy off the floor. Like he's a mess. Um, He's, he's potentially a liability for the company he works for. And like, we got to get him home without him running into traffic. Yeah. And I, I think in a vaccinated world, because everyone's had to build relationships Virtually, I, I think a lot of that will carry over. I think folks who recognize that they do well or, or better, you know, they don't run into traffic when they're on, they're on Zoom. Um, yeah. They might prefer it. You know, I, I I spoke earlier of a trip being taken away. It could also be a trip get, being given back on purpose by an employee who just says, I'm, I actually would just prefer to be at home and not 
have you stuff me into coach for a 17 hour international flight and you miss my family for a week and a half. Like I, I can do this from here. <laughs> now, I have heard so many people saying, oh, I used to, business owners saying I had an office before because I worried about productivity, but now I'm finding when people are working from home, it's fine. So we may never go back to an office. I hear people saying, oh, I love that I don't have to travel. I'm saving so much time. I'm with my family. And then I've heard other people talking to somebody internationally and they say, ah, well, we don't have to do the business now. As soon as you're in such and such a city, look me up, you know, and, and, and so it's then it's pushed huh. off even longer because you can't yeah. travel over there. So I, th I think you're right. There's going to be part of a explosion out of the gate, but there's also going to be ways that we figure out to leverage on call. So if any of the listeners have ever had the opportunity to do business in another country where you've been expected to drink more than you're comfortable, whether you don't drink at all or you limit your drinking for whatever reason, you know, certainly reach out to me on uh, LinkedIn or leave a comment on the podcast. I'd love to have you on the show and, and get your personal experience. Uh, but now, uh, Mike, what I want to do is just jump to some personal questions. Okay. First is, what's your favorite foreign word? Uh, I, I've got two. The first one is... Uh, ikigai, which is Japanese for your purpose, your purpose of being. Oh, um, that's a good one. Yeah, I, in English, it's I-K-I-G-A-I. -I. Um, creates a really cool Venn diagram of what you're good at, what you can get paid to do, and what actually lights your spirit. And then Ikigai is in the middle of those three circles. Wow. Um, it's really interesting. Uh, and my other is from living in Italy, um, is Ciao Bello or Ciao Bello. I mean, Bello and Ciao are like interchangeable um, words, you know, you say chow for everything. Chow is hello, chow is goodbye, chow is don't right. talk to me right now. Um, and then it's just either feminine or masculine, um, um, or a, or a non gender binary version of that, which still is not used a ton in Italy because they're, they're fairly patriarchal over there. So you're in Italy, you're kind of either a man or a woman. And that's, that's, mm -hmm in my experience they, they're not really well that's the language is built that, that way so yeah. it's, it's it's hard to get around it yeah ciao yeah ciao yeah. <laughs> i can remember hearing that in italy it's very warm it is yeah. how about your favorite vacation my favorite vacation there's uh i've i've been on a lot of fantastic vacations um i would say one that comes to mind uh, from a couple years ago, back in 2019, mm -hmm. is uh, I, my wife and I went to France and Italy. I'd never been to France, uh, oh. and she'd never she'd been to Italy, but very briefly. And uh, so it was it was truly a pleasure to show her where I lived in Rome and like speak Italian. And um, you know, I'm I'm half Italian uh, in terms of my heritage, and so uh, it was really cool to like to share that with her. Um, there's definitely some others in there, but I, I think the only other one I would mention is uh, in 2015, I went back to Japan with my dad and we actually went to the apartment. It was a small like three-story building, the apartment mm -hmm. that we were in when I was two years old and it was converted to office space. <laughs> so we rang on the door and there's just like two kind of like not tall, like we're like five, six, five, seven, like kind of average looking white guys we stand out in Japan for sure. Right. And this guy opens the door and he speaks in Japanese and we're like, 
uh-uh, like what? And he was like, he explained it was now an office and we were trying to tell him that we lived there. And I think he thought that we were trying to enter and he was like, no, it's okay. Like, it's nice to meet you. Like, please, <laughs> like, go please, away. you know, this go is over weird. that direction. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of open arm and open hand. And it was very much like, please leave because I don't quite understand what you're talking about. They used to live here 30 something like that. I can't be right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you never got in. <laughs> oh, he, he banned us. Yeah, we were not allowed in the, the apartment. <laughs> oh, that's funny. But what a fun thing to do with your dad to go back there. Yeah. How about um, one of your most rewarding cross-cultural experiences? Hmm, that's a good question. I, I think that, you know, when I lived in Italy, I was a student. And I remember traveling to Germany, uh, to Berlin. And... Um, it was kind of it was all in the same day there, there's a light-hearted part of the story and a more serious um the light-hearted part is that my last name Krauss is not it i didn't go through ellis island with this last name it was Krauss, you know k-r-a-u-s-e and then like many people who went through ellis island you know they're processing a lot of people so they're, they're kind of writing really fast and there you go k-r-a-s-s um, right correct so I, I gave my passport at the hotel and they freaked out because apparently crass, is, it means rad, like radical is what it translates to. And there's Ooh. an eyeglasses brand. It's like a hip eyeglasses brand called crass. <laughs> and so they're like, are you like of the crass family? And I was like, yeah, it's on my passport. And they're like, they're like grabbing people from behind the front desk at the hotel. Like, you got to check this out. Like this guy is like of the crass, like optical empire. And I was like, what optical empire are you referring to? <laughs> oh, so they're you like, didn't even know that there were sunglasses. Or... <laughs> yeah. They're like, do you know what this word means? I was like, it's just my name. And like, no, it means rad. It's like, it's very slangy and cool. And there's a hip uh, sunglasses brand. Um, so <laughs> in, in that same day where I had a very lighthearted moment, I also walked through, um, in Berlin, they've got the uh, Jewish memorial, and it's it's mm -hmm. an incredible thing. You you kind of step into it, and you go down uh, two or three meters, but you're still in the city. And they mm -hmm. just set up these big, like you know, dark obsidian-colored uh, blocks, and you walk through them. And it's uh, supposed to simulate what it would be like uh, during World War II when uh, European Jews were trying to walk through the night, right? And they, they didn't know it was around each corner. And so that was, it was an incredibly humbling experience going from a very funny, lighthearted experience to doing that all in the same day. I, I still remember, you know, vividly how I felt. And I also remember how smart the Germans are. They coated it with like this anti-spray paint film. Oh, interesting. I didn't know there was such a thing. Mm -hmm. They were worried that smart. somebody would come in and, you know, tag it with, it, it could be tag it as Mike, you know, those tags on the side of a subway right. but it could also be you know a, a racial slur or something else entirely and they said we're not going to build this thing and then spend the rest of our lives cleaning it right we're going to build this and then we're going to be smart enough to engineer a product that uh it basically you could take spray paint off with your finger is what they told us so if somebody spray painted it you could just wipe it right off with your finger and it would be like it was never there that is so cool. It's such a German thing. Mm -hmm. The Germans are brilliant like that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, 
my uh, teen boys were starting to get into spray painting. I thought, oh, I don't want them going out and tagging everything. So I gave them permission to paint their room. So we actually have some pretty cool artwork spray paint onto their bedroom walls. <laughs> I love it. Cool mom. <laughs> <laughs> it's just paint, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, this has been a fabulous conversation. Do you have any final recommendations for any listeners that are interested in doing international marketing? Uh, in terms of recommendations, I would just, uh, I would say don't let all the unknowns stop you from doing something that could ultimately be really beneficial for you as a professional and your organization uh, that you work for. So if you have any questions, you know, I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, my name's Mike Crass, K-R-A-S-S, -S, and that's all my social media handles and LinkedIn are, are the same, and uh, you can find me on our website at mkg.marketing. I'm happy to talk about any questions that you have. Um, the only parting uh, bit of inspiration that I might leave with everyone is that the best part about doing international marketing is eventually you get to go on a trip to that market. <laughs> and so think long and hard before you start accepting, you know, international assignments for places you might not want to go because eventually they're going to put you on an airplane and you're going to go there. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I've heard of business side. owners picking places that they want to do business on where they want to travel. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Makes sense. Uh -huh. Well, thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate you sharing all this information today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And thank you, listeners. If you learned something today or you had a laugh, uh, tell somebody about the podcast. You can find it on all your favorite places to listen. And if you can, um, send somebody over who's had the drinking issue uh, with business. Certainly love to do an interview with them. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.